Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 115, Beloved. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And we are back for the last interview in our long series on spiritual innovation and spiritual entrepreneurship. We looked at organizations that were part of the first cohort of the Open Door Project, sponsored by Moisha House, and the organizations that were part of the pilot cohort of Klaus Glean Incubator. Today, our guests are Sarah Luria and Isaac Luria. They are a married couple who has founded an organization in Brooklyn called Beloved, which bills itself as a home-based, open-hearted Jewish community. Beloved is sort of like a progressive Chabad based in Sarah and Isaac's home. It creates Jewish experiences for regular Jews, including meditation circles, Shabbat meals, creative rituals, and Jewish learning. And it also serves as a nurturing home base for Jewish leaders, offering space, support, and training to clergy, activists, ritual leaders, artists, students, and educators in order to provide nourishment for those who nourish others. We're really excited to get into this conversation about what is a really new kind of Jewish organization, at least in the progressive world, and one that I think in many ways we could all create in our own homes. All of us who have a home could open it up for Jewish experiences for others. And so so we're really interested in looking at what's happening in this new organization called Beloved, and also perhaps next week talking about some of the implications and possibilities that Beloved raises for what we or our listeners might be able to do. I'm excited to introduce the founders of Beloved, Sarah Luria and Isaac Luria. Before founding Beloved, Sarah had experience as a community organizer, a birth doula, and a hospital chaplain. She has rabbinic ordination from the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion of Reform Judaism. She's well known in the Jewish community for creating Immerse NYC, a pluralistic, feminist, grassroots, energized community mikveh project. Remember, a mikveh is a Jewish ritual bath in which all sorts of rituals of transition and renewal can take place. We talked to Eliza Klein and Anita Diamond earlier in our podcast history, who are the founders of the Mayim Chaim Mikveh in Boston, which is kind of the originator of this approach to mikveh. Sarah is also the program director for the Hebrew Union College Tish Star Leadership Fellowship, which helps rabbinical students think about the vision that they have for their rabbinate and for the future of the Jewish community. Isaac Luria has a day job at the Nathan Cummings Foundation, where he serves as the director of Voice, Creativity, and Culture. We're really excited to jump into this conversation, so let's get right into it. Sarah, Isaac, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Sarah, can we get started just by understanding as a anchoring point for this conversation, your current big project that you've launched recently called Beloved. Can you tell us what that is and perhaps a little bit of the story of how it came to be? When Trump was running for office, I thought it's impossible. He'll never be elected. And then when he was elected, I thought 
it's impossible. He'll never be inaugurated. Like I really thought in those three months or whatever it was that no chance. And then when he was inaugurated, I went down to DC for the women's march. And on the way home, on the bus, on the way home from the women's march, it hit me like a ton of bricks. This is the reality of our world. And what came to me on that bus ride was we've got to double down on who we are. Each of us has just got to do what we're doing, except more and stronger and more purposefully and better. And I thought what I need to be doing right now is building community, is weaving community. Uh, And I couldn't exactly do that the way that I really needed to at Immerse NYC. So I thought, okay, I need the next chapter in the work that I'm doing. And there is so much love in this world. The way we re-knit the fabric of community is through love. And Isaac and I just started brainstorming how to make that possible, how to make that manifest in the world. How do we make that love that we experience with each other and from the source of life and with our children, how do we make that manifest in the world? We build a community out of our home that's based in love. And we called it Beloved. One of the ways that we started Beloved was we said, let's get Torah into people's bodies. So on Shabbat morning, once a month, we have a, what we call a creative Torah ritual, where I read a few verses from the Torah and I translate it as I go. And then we have a conversation about it. Recently, it was about um, anointing the priests. And I brought Neutrogena body oil. And we experimented with just like, what does oil feel like? And why did they use oil versus water versus wine? And just kind of trying to figure out like, can Torah be revealed to you in some way? So that's one example of the kind of things that we're doing at Beloved, where we're just trying to say, I don't care how much you know. I don't care your Jewish background or your religious background. I don't care if you go to services every week or if you haven't been since your bar mitzvah or your bat mitzvah or whatever. That's not important to me. What's important to me is that you're sitting here in front of me and you want Judaism to matter in your life through Torah. Another motivation for this is that I think sometimes at synagogue, um, there's a sense of the Oneg conversation can stay very superficial. How are you? I'm good. How are your kids? They're fine. They're going to this college or they're doing this in school or that we're going away for this vacation. And I want this community to get deeper than that. Those are some of the ways that we're experimenting with weaving community together. Uh, We're also having um, concerts with musicians in the living room of our house so that it feels like they're not there to perform for you. We're all in this conversation together. And that's really the idea is to have experiences and reflection together that brings us closer to one another. And so that's an aspiration for being a beloved at Beloved, of course. Sarah and I were in our tiny little apartment in Park Slope a couple of years ago and just imagining what it would look like to try to transform the experience of community within the Jewish world. 
we'd go round and round of conversation. Uh, it should be this, it should be that. Why doesn't it feel right in a synagogue? Why doesn't it feel right, you know, on a program we might do a retreat? But we knew that we had had a taste of it a couple of times at a Shabbat meal or during a learning session where something really just clicked. And we started to think about just having people in our home. And so Beloved is a, is a house uh, where we have a chance to experience um, our belovedness together. Sarah, you know, is the rabbi, I'm the Rebbitzin. Um, <laughs> and we uh, put together, we, we moved into a big house. We rented a house that, like many folks have looked at the home as a central place of Jewish life. So we got accelerated on this plan to launch this uh, immediately after the, the latest election, which you may have heard about. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it didn't go that well. For people like us. Uh, and we, we um, you know, in particular have been noticing just like the way that community is fraying. This wonderful line that a friend of ours said, uh, Robin, Robin Henderson Espinoza, uh, a trans Latinx theologian, they said that uh, we have, we'd always talk about being in community, but it's really hard to be together. They say uh, we have to relearn how to be human together. So that, that line, you know, felt like it had a application to the way that the Jewish world was functioning and also like pointed to the problem in our society of we don't know very much, you know, it's hard for us to be vulnerable with other people. I know as a Jewish man in particular, like that is a struggle that I carry with me. Um, and, and part of that vulnerability is how you build community, authentic community where people belong to one another, that they can be beloved to each other. And, uh, and so Beloved is an attempt to, to re-knit that fabric of community that, that many of us have lost. And um, we do lots of stuff in the house. We have creative Shabbat Torah reading rituals that Sarah leads. They're amazing. Uh, we uh, have local, we have small groups that we call Beloved Circles, where folks get in community together and learn together and sort of share deeply together about what's going on in their lives. It's been a wild ride these last few months, and it's re but really exciting. Just want to stay a little bit longer on the sort of superficial level, or maybe it's not the superficial level, and talk about something that I've certainly read in articles about Beloved, and I'm curious how you, you think about them, that it's kind of like Chabad in the sense that there's a family that is kind of the anchor family, and they open their home, and in fact, Right, Chabad families actually get a bigger home than they would otherwise need for their family because their home is not only a home, but it's also a place of gathering. And, and I guess I'm curious both whether you see it and whether this was inspired by Chabad or, and, and whether you see their significant differences when you, even if you take the model and you bring it into a, a progressive Jewish context or even a pluralistic Jewish context, because we had an interview a few weeks ago with Dan Horowitz from The Well in Detroit, and he talked about how Chabad was his initial inspiration, and he kind of started in a similar way too, saying, well, we're gonna have all the events at our home and we're gonna um, do it in a way that's very much like Chabad, but then he ended up moving into a, a different model, largely because he felt like it would be a better way to empower people by saying, not only you should come to our house, but hopefully you'll be doing things in, in your house. So I'm curious how you see the whole story of this in relation to that model. And, and even uh, if you kind of see it similarly to, to Dan Horowitz, how you see this evolving. 
I always laugh when I think about the fact that I'm called, quote, an entrepreneur and that I'm in the, quote, innovation field because, and I get this a lot with the work that I do at Immerse NYC, which is a community mikvah project. A mikvah is a Jewish ritual bath that people immerse in for life transitions. And I've been in this field for five years. And, um, and, and while the work that I'm doing at Immerse NYC is um, new in a way, we are building on an ancient tradition. I did not make up mikvah. The way I think about it is the adjacent next. What is So we have this Jewish ritual bath. We have this beautiful ancient ritual. What is the way that we can bring that ancient wisdom into the 21st century? And I think the same thing about home-based experience. It's like, oh yeah, Sarah's so innovative. She came up with, let's do Judaism in our home. It, it's just, it's so obvious. And one of the things we talk about at Beloved is returning to the basics. What are the basics? Bringing human beings together around food and music and sharing our life stories um, and using our ancient wisdom as a springboard for those conversations and gatherings together. So yes, you could say that Chabad inspired us. You could also say that Moisha House, which I know you've had Moisha House on the podcast, Moisha House has inspired us because that too is a home-based Jewish experience. You could also say that Base Hillel, which is also home-based, which is an or- a new organization that's doing home-based uh, Jewish life for 20s and 30s, also inspired us. Or you could just say, more simply maybe, um, Judaism is in large part a home-based experience, a home-based religion, and most of our rituals are home-based. When the temple was destroyed, we, went, we brought Judaism into the home, and we've been doing it ever since. And by the way, I've got this idea of a, of a braided bread that you might know. Um, but, um, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> and a braided candle, and you got a lot of good yeah, stuff to sell uh, me. Yeah, huh? I've got all kinds of innovative <laughs> ideas here. Um, what we should do is yeah. we should light two candles on Shabbat. <laughs> one after another yes. Boom. Genius. this is genius ideas here uh you heard it first on judaism unbound but um yeah but but yeah. maybe but maybe then what we're really looking at to a certain extent is not that these things are innovative per se because they're actually extremely ancient but that the 20th century for various reasons was an anomaly where people for whatever reason started to experience judaism largely in large institutions and perhaps also in the home. But usually, I I guess what I've been struck by and initially was struck by this in terms of Moisha House is that even also in the 20th century, there was an idea that, yes, a lot of Judaism took place in the home, but largely for your family and closest friends. The idea that the home should become a kind of center of Jewish life for people who are not only your family and closest friends, but for a wider circle, that seems like something that was not, at least in the 20th century, a major way of doing Jewish. And that seems to be what's coming back with Moisha House, or, or coming back or coming for the first time with Moisha House, Base Hillel, what you're doing. Do you think so? A lot of things left the personal intimate realm in the 20th century and became professionalized. And I'm thinking particularly around birth because I'm also a doula. A doula is a person who 
is a non-medical professional who sits with the person in labor and supports them in all the ways, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, that a person can be supported in non in a non-medical way. And the the corollary here is that people used to sit together when a person was in labor and support each other in the home um, before the 20th century with people around to support each other in an intimate, personalized, if you want to say, way. And then when birth left the home and went into the hospital, it became professionalized. You needed a doctor. You could only be with your partner if you were lucky. And then um, now people are reclaiming home birth and having a doula support you ha- through the experience. Um, and, I, and so I, I see it as um, a return again to the basics of what do we need in order to be human and be human together. And I think what I'm seeing, what I hope I'm seeing, is a return to um, trust in the innate power of a human being to get what they need and um, a deprofessionalization in some ways of our spiritual lives and our communal lives. I think it's no accident that in the same time that privatization and professionalization were rising in our society, that indicators of loneliness and depression also became uh, clearer and those indicators are going up, right? Like the bowling alone thesis, the bowl, excuse me, the bowling alone thesis is uh, one that, um, you know, Robert Putnam writes this book. It's about uh, what has happened in our society when it comes to communal and civic institutions. Like that crisis, I think, has um, impacted Jewish life very deeply. Um, It also shows up in the way our philanthropic institutions uh, sustain the community with very large donors being uh, in charge of a lot of how the community unfolds. Um, so we're all of those intersecting challenges, I think, are being are landing now in a time where younger people in particular, but people of all ages, of course, are noticing a distance and inauthenticity to that. And so you've got this response of grassroots Judaism, you know, trying to respond to that moment and energy being found on the margins of Jewish life and things that would feel that feel countercultural. Um, but also feel like super simple. Uh, and that returning to the roots is happening in all kinds of fields. I see it happening in all kinds of religious spaces. Um, and that that's really where the energy is, um, which is great. Uh, and hopefully we'll find a way to live with both the amazing discoveries of the 20th century and the future uh, that emerges. I try my best to put myself in the mind of like different kinds of listeners and see like what their questions might be now as opposed to um and i'm thinking like somebody could be thinking okay this sounds cool and i agree that it's not necessarily super novel and that you're tying to an ancient tradition but like what's different between beloved what what differentiates beloved from just like a, a family that opens their home every once in a while to friends like is is it is there something like and I get the sense that the answer is not nothing, but I also get the sense that part of the goal is like to make more people do that kind of thing. Uh, but I'd, I'd love to hear from you, like what makes Beloved 
an organization with a website and with sort of public offerings in a way that separates it from just, you know, me and my wife have people over a few times a year for holidays too. Like what's, what's that next step that makes you a little different? Given the countercultural narrative, like that we're trying to stoke and energize, it takes a lot of skill to facilitate a group very well so that people feel safe and vulnerable, safe enough to be vulnerable so that they can build community connection together. Um, it's a skill that I'm constantly learning about. Uh, you know, how do you set an intention? How do you build uh, uh, that fire, those connections between people in a small group setting? Um, and then second, it takes, you know, there is serious Jewish knowledge that needs to be brought to bear uh, in these conversations. People are looking for that substance. And in much of the constituency that we serve, we see not a lot of Jewish education, a lot of like experiences of feeling like I'm a bad Jew because I married outside the faith or I don't speak Hebrew or Israel is complicated for me or uh, I'm queer or all kinds of things that have made folks feel like they're outside. And God bless Jewish people. I love them. Uh, you know, and we have a way of trying to one up each other with particular kinds of knowledge. And so there is a, a rebuilding and reclamation project that actually does need some deep Jewish knowledge. And, and you know, I, I feel like I don't have the capacity for that. That's really Sarah's role is to be our rabbi and my rabbi and, and the community's rabbi. And so, yeah, I think it does need a perfect, like for this moment in time, it does need a sort of culture setting. Wouldn't it be great that we could work ourselves out of a moment in time where we needed professional help to be able to understand one another's belovedness? Um, the word facilitator is great to translate. I mean, it really does mean to make easy. And we're trying to make it easy for people to do a hard thing, which is be religious in this day and age. Before we get too much further, I'd love to hear, so we, we got a taste of this, but I feel like there's there's got to be a, a lot here in terms of what led in particular the two of you to to do this. And and so there's, I mean, there's two sort of segments I could picture and you can answer with whatever combination of them, but like there's y'all together as a, as a husband and wife, like what led you to, to take this leap and create something that for all the reasons we've talked about is ancient, but is also not the mainstream, most normative thing that people expect from, from folks. Um, but also like what is it about maybe each one of you individually that gets you excited to take on your respective roles in the Beloved Project? So when I was running Immerse NYC, what I learned was that, um, so we have volunteer facilitators of ritual, ritual facilitators. Uh, we call them mikvah guides. We learned that from Mayim Chaim, which is the, the mothership of community mikvah in Boston. And we train volunteers to facilitate ritual. And I thought that would be an interesting part of running the organization of Immerse NYC. But in fact, it's the core of running Immerse NYC. Because the people who facilitate ritual, they are lay people. They are not clergy they are you and me and and maybe those aren't good examples but <laughs> they are your listeners um who otherwise have no ritual leadership experience um but they're people who want to sit with a stranger on a tuesday night 
in a mikvah, hear their story, and help them craft a ritual that matters to the person's life. And there was something about these mikvah guides that I that surprised me. I just found them remarkable. And in fact, they are the heart of the organization. I might run the back end of Immersed NYC, but the mikvah guides are on the ground at the mikvah or in the water, as you, you know, whatever metaphor you want to use. Um, they're at the mikvah. They're the heart of the organization. And I just kept feeling like, where do they go? Where do my mikvah guides go? These people who serve the Jewish community in this quiet way that is not flashy and nobody else sees, where do they go to, um, to tap into the well of Jewish love and support and resilience and knowledge in, and, and how all those pieces intersect? Where do my mikvah guides go for that? And then I started thinking, you know, where do leaders of Jewish social justice organizations go for that? And where do rabbis go for that? <laughs> Where do you go to get deep support and love from a community of people that may be strangers or you may not know very well? The idea was a synagogue. And I do think for some people, the synagogue really works for that. But I know that it's not working for many people right now. And so, when, when I thought about how do we build a community for the people who serve, and when I say serve, I mean it in the most broad possible way that, that a person could mean it. I mean acupuncturists and massage therapists and yoga teachers and, teach, and, and fifth grade teachers and mikvah guides and Jewish professionals and all kinds of people that I can't even imagine who serve in some way. Um, I think where do they go to replenish their spirit. There are places to go that are in the secular world or in the, quote, spiritual world or in the, quote, wellness world. And I want to know, where do you go in the Jewish world? But this kind of experience of feeling beloved by a community, by a person, and maybe even by God, it's not going to be only located in our home, but we're hoping that our home is a nexus for that so that that spreads out into the world. And Isaac and I feel that about each other. And we feel that about our children, obviously. And that is the base from which we're going to be able to do the deep listening and deep support and deep attentiveness because we feel we have it from each other. And that's part of the reason we felt like we could launch this together. What you just talked about reminds me of uh, a time about a decade ago when I was really interested in exploring certain elements of the megachurch world, particularly the ones that were uh, that did a lot of their work in small groups. Yes. And when I came to the church service, which was this, you know, 7,000 person service or whatever, the people greeted you with such warmth and such love that it was just a remarkable experience that I just sort of never experienced that way before in a large institutional setting. And I remember asking the people who were the greeters and saying, how can you be so welcoming all the time? I mean, like, when do you have your time to be loved? I mean, I didn't say it that way at the time, but now, you know, I would. And they said, 
Wednesdays, right? It, yes. was, it was a Sunday, right? And they, they said they had a clear answer. It was like, yes, yes. Sunday's not our time. Sunday's when we're on the job, but Wednesday is when we have our time and we're not on the job then and we're not welcoming in anybody. This And what you just said, the idea, right, that the people that we hope will um, connect others with Judaism in this most welcoming, warm, beloved way, the only way that that's possible if, is if those people themselves are loved and somehow we have to find a time and a space and a place for them to do that. And that that just really struck me as to that that I hadn't heard before in terms of what you're building, that it was that at least a significant part of it is to nurture those who then we hope will go out and nurture others is is uh, incredible and fascinating and I would love to know what listeners who are running organizations sort of make of it because uh, it seems so obvious that that is necessary and yet I don't think we have much of it. I mean, what you just said is totally right and full disclosure, I mean, this is the model we are learning from. It, we're not learning from lots of Jewish organizations that are doing this. Some are, but w- I, I'm looking at my bookshelf right now and it's like small groups, how to run a small group ministry, like the five books from the mega churches. They've understood that as they go big, they must go small and having the relationship between those two be in, be in dialogue. It's been incredible to watch people notice in themselves new feelings and experiences about Jewishness in these small groups. So back to the question about why we started this together. So one of the important stories about Sarah and me is that we uh, met at Hillel at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, a few days after 9-11. I was a freshman who had just gotten to campus. Sarah was a sophomore. She was a co-president of Hillel at the time and was leading Rosh Hashanah services, you know, in the weeks following 9-11. You know, and I showed up at Hillel, having been the child of an interfaith, you know, marriage. My mom's a Christian minister. My dad's Jewish. I had two religions in my house. I had a brisk baptism confirmation and bar mitzvah. And on, you know, religious community for me was like extremely uncomfortable. I either, I was a preacher's kid in my mom's churches, uh, or I would go to the synagogue across town with my dad and I'd be the kid with the mom across town who was the pastor, right? So there was a lot of complication for me in religious community. And when I showed up at Trinity, you know, the world had sort of crumbled and I just sort of wandered in to Hillel. I don't know if it was to like meet Jewish women or find community. I think it was probably a combination of both. And, uh, and I, and I did. Um, And Sarah became, you know, watching her lead those services and also to have the meal afterwards with this new group of people that was like, come on in, you know, this is a hard time, come be with us, caused me to go back to Hillel every Friday night for the next four years. At one point, I was treasurer in my like tour of duty as a (laughs) Hillel leader. But like Hillel had a huge impact on us. And Lisa Kassow, the director of that Hillel, um, married us. And also was, has been an incredible mentor to both of us. And so that we, we noticed together and we're sort of formed as young people together by warmth in a Jewish institution. And so we have been constantly trying to find that. Um, and sometimes it's better than other times. But honestly, like, I think we felt at a certain point we wanted to try to try to build it ourselves. There's a huge poetry that you would, as a result of that 
connection, seek to give back. At a, I mean, I think it's really special what you just described. But I, I also I want to highlight. Uh, well, I don't want to highlight. I want to ask a question about your mission, purpose, et cetera, because you're talking about learning from uh, from mega churches. You're talking about your own background being son of a son of a preacher. You can I, sing I, it. Sorry, so, careful, because when you tell me I'm allowed to sing, I I, I go. But, um, <laughs> On that note, you're talking about being influenced by and learning from other traditions. Like, is part of your mission purpose specifically to serve Jews? Is it to serve, like, the the quote-unquote Jewish community, which, of course, includes Jews and their loved ones, etc.? Or is it sort of like whoever wants to embed themselves in this beloved world of yours, you're happy to? Like, like where? how do you think about sort of your target population, the, the groups that you're looking to reach in terms of their religious backgrounds, Jewish and otherwise? There are so many uh, fluid religious identities right now. Um, so I would say that our home is a Jewish home. Isaac and I are raising Jewish children and we have a Jewish family and we are a, a Jewish home base for Faith-rooted seekers is one way we could put it. We certainly serve Jews. We certainly serve people who are fellow travelers along with Jews. And we also serve people who are hungry to be human together and who are hungry to serve others and be replenished and have their well refilled in this kind of a setting. So we feel like we're a Jewish home base that is branching out um, to serve the community that wants this and, and is hungry for this. And so when you ask the question, are we serving Jews? I would say yes. And we want to build this vocabulary of belovedness and of God in the Jewish community, not in the, the God you don't believe in kind of way, but in a way of recognizing that there is there is a deep sense of interconnection that weaves together all of us. And how do we recognize that more in our relationships, in our lives, in our communities? I mentioned to like give a little thought of mine. We were talking about God and love and I have like a geek out thing I want to do for a second, um, which is just that I'm a big numbers guy. And when I turned 26 a year ago, I did this bar 26 for thing that I've talked about on the show with some people. And I like made a bunch of experiences for myself. And one of the things I did is I like dug deep into gematria, into this like Jewish numerology. And one of the things, and, and, and also by the way, bar 26 foot is a cute like name, but also God's name in, in Jewish numerology is 26. So I was like excited about this. And one teaching that I sort of found for myself or learning I made was that when you have ahava, which means love, ahava is 13. And so when you have love in two people, the 13 and the 13 make 26, they make what I would think of as holiness or God. And I mean, you, you can make a lot of things work in Jewish numerology. And it's like, <laughs> whether, whether we want to look at that as like mystically true in like the capital T sense or like a cool thing. Um, that's not necessarily like the essence of the universe. I think it's just, it's really refreshing to have a conversation with folks who are looking to innovate in all the words we use, but but from a place that's talking about God and talking about love. 
So, like, relatedly or not, I don't know if this is related or if it's a new question, but it's all related. So, you've each hinted in various of your answers to the idea of justice and to the fact that you started thinking about this in the wake of the Trump election. And I'm curious to get a little more about sort of how does that flow into the kinds of work you're doing? And maybe on that note, if you could give us sort of practically what it looks like when you when you gather people together for beloved programming, like if you have particular examples of of things you're proud of that you've created thus far that you're looking to create, I'd I'd love to hear what that looks like and and what it and how it does relate to themes of justice that I know you both really care deeply about. There's a new field. Well, it's not a new field. Nothing is new, right? But there's a field that is being that is emerging right now called healing justice. And uh, it's something that I think I, I wrote about more than five years ago, maybe seven years ago, um, in a sermon that I gave about Dina. Uh, Dina, the biblical character, was raped, and she is never heard from again. And one of the things that I shared in this sermon was, where's the justice for Dina? So I'm not talking about the court justice. I'm not talking about bringing the perpetrators into a justice system and um, having them go to jail or whatever you would think about in a justice system. I'm talking about how does Dina heal and move forward from a place of strength and love so that she can do the work she is called to be doing in the world. It is very hard to do the work that you are called to be doing in the world when the noise of pain and trauma and fear is getting in your way. And so when I think about the healing justice work that I want to do in the world, both through mikva and through the work of love and healing and ritual that we do at this house, I think about healing justice and saying, Everyone in our communities, everyone in our midst has a, a call to do important work that they have been put on this planet to do. And that is how our world is going to be healed through everyone getting really clear about what their superpower is and then living into that superpower. And I think it is really hard to heal our world when each one of us is rightfully so, caught up in our own pain and trauma and, and struggle. And so I think that we need places where we can heal together so that we can then, well, actually, I would say we need places that we can heal together for the sake of our own fullness and wholeness and so that we can go out and do the work we need to do in the world to make this world more whole. Well, our society is undergoing a great transition of some sort. And it's related to ecological devastation and the pain that we experience when we confront the facts of what's going on right now. Uh, it also is related to, you know, the anger and outsiderness that so many of us feel in our politics, whether it's those on the right or those on the left. And Jewish people in particular, I think, are re-experiencing in America something that we thought we had put to bed. I mean. Nazis in the street? Cops leaving when Nazis march? I mean, that's crazy. And 
when you ask a question of somebody, how are you doing? And you have set the stage uh, so that they might actually share how they're doing. They may, they're going to talk about some of the things that are going on in their lives, which may be about inherited trauma. It may be about the feeling of anti-Semitism. It may be about the way that race works in the society. It may be about their inability to find good work um, or their worry about their kid's autism, right? Like, once you surface that stuff, you can't help but be invested. You can't help but be invested in the outcomes, you know, that you see in the broader public discourse uh, and policy discourse. So, I mean, justice is one way to describe it, but I just feel like these are, this is where it leads you. And when you ask these questions seriously. So in a few of our recent episodes, we've heard from people about just particularly pivotal moments in their lives that ended up leading in some indirect or direct way to them, you know, joining the world of spiritual leadership. And I'm curious if either of you has a particular moment or experience that played a really crucial role in, in leading you down this path. When I was a senior at Trinity, I had a friend named Carrie who was in my group of friends. And as you might imagine at Trinity College in Hartford, Connecticut, um, it's a small Jewish population. Um, And so most of my friends weren't Jewish, but they all knew how important the Hillel house was to me because they came for Shabbat often. And and also it was just like a, a part of our campus life. So our friend Carrie, uh, one day in February in 2004, um, was in a car accident and was killed instantly. And what I remember about that experience most of all was that we might have had flip phones, but we really didn't text each other then. I can't, I can't remember. We didn't communicate. We each got the news. Each of our friends got the news from a different place. And what happened was over the course of the next couple of hours as the news came through our friend circle, people just went to the Hillel house. Jewish people, people who weren't Jewish, we just went to the Hillel house. And there was this living room with a fireplace and we turned on the fireplace because it was a flip switch. And we sat there together and we cried and we didn't speak really. There was nothing to say. And we just knew where to go without communicating, without texting, without Facebook. And that place was this Jewish refuge in a way. And it wasn't for only Jewish people, but it was a, it was a Jewish home base, like I said before. And there was something about that moment of just knowing that that's where we could go to cry and be quiet together and know that there would be a sense of love and support that would be unspoken. That to me is one of the motivating stories behind how can we build this space now in our lives? Where can people go for that? And maybe they go to their yoga studio and maybe they go to their synagogue, maybe. But we know that the third space is up for grabs. And Isaac and I want our home to be a third space. And maybe other people will have their homes to be a third space. But for now, we imagine that Beloved is the kind of place you could go to in a moment like what happened on that 
cold February day in 2004 when Carrie died and we didn't need to speak. We just needed to sit together. So we are drawing near the end of this episode, but often at the end, we like to just sort of go open floor and see if our guests have any thoughts or ideas or topics that we haven't been able to talk about yet that you want to bring to our listeners' attention. So is there anything from the nitty grittiest of small picture items to some big picture idea you have about the future of Judaism that you'd like people to be thinking about? I believe we need a collective mikvah for our Jewish experience, which is to say like, what was like, what I think about mikvah, I think about like, you stand at the water's edge and you say, I want to let go of some of what was that doesn't serve me anymore. I want to be present to what is right now, what is true, whether I like it or not. And I want to have a way that I emerge out of these waters with a covenant, with a, you know, with an intention. And so I feel like, you know, there is no mechanism better than mikvah for experiencing a transition and actually like being present to it and then moving forward. But I think it's really hard to move forward without the letting go and the being present part. And I feel like that's what we're trying to do in our Jewish world. We're like innovation. And it's like, hold on, like all these people need to let go and including us, like we all grew, I mean, I don't know how you grew up, but there's like some of what was that isn't going to work anymore that we have to let go of and grieve so that we can be present to what is and move forward into what will be. Like I, I, I talk about this all the time. I'm just like, get those people in the water in whatever like metaphorical sense you want that to be so that we can like really be creative right now. So we have a bit of an unorthodox request for one guest to propose a question to another guest. And we're intrigued. So we're going to let Isaac take the floor. How do you think it's been for the kids? <laughs> uh, on Saturday night, we had a band called the Epicorus. And they're an, uh, an Indo-Arabic band with a, a heart of Jewish mysticism, I would say. Um, and when we think about what we are calling beloved music, which are concerts at our house, but they're not just concerts. It's like the form and the content meet. And we want to have an intimate experience with artists who are sharing their heart with us. And we, in turn, want to sit and love and support them. And then we want to respond to their art. So that's the hope with Beloved Music. And we had a concert on Saturday night with the Epicorus. And they, they shared music. And then I uh, shared a piece of uh, reflection from the Jewish tradition. And then they played for another hour. And then the, the people in the room responded to the music by sharing their experiences and asking questions. And it was a really beautiful evening. And our two older kids, our, um, our son, Caleb, who's eight, and our daughter, Eva, who's six, sat in the front row and they were mesmerized by this music and by the people who were playing the music um, and by the fact that we had 45 people in our home sitting attentively listening and swaying to this music. Um, and I just think if that's what our children think Judaism is, 
that's pretty, that's pretty sweet. That is pretty delightful for that to be their experience of Judaism. And clearly we want it for our children and we want it for our community. Um, but a real, real bonus that um, we have it for our kids. Isaac, like, how do you think it's been for the kids? <laughs> I mean, having our kids uh, part of what we're doing is so destabilizing and also wonderful. Like, I don't know if you've ever taken to your kid, your kids to like the office and then there's a meeting you need to have and you're like, please stay on the iPad, you know, um, it's but like, right now. they're just like, yeah, they, yeah exactly. Right. <laughs> but right. while we've been so having like, this conversation, I received a text that the dog ate a pound of candy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, as dogs do. Oh know. my gosh. Right. Right. So I love the way that the kids like, uh, upend my sanctimony about professional boundaries and like how I'm supposed to present in the world and like constantly. And, and also like they, they get to see this thing that is totally funky. I mean, it's, it's funky. It is hard too, you know, like putting them to bed on Saturday night when we had that con concert, like I was on bed duty and they weren't having it. Um, <laughs> And, you know, sometimes, you know, you can hear them not having it with me. And so it's, it's sort of part of like taking down the boundaries. For me, like, I love seeing them see what we see in the tradition. I don't think that there's a way, like, I couldn't take them to synagogue. I just couldn't. And their friends come over, so they get to run around downstairs. And that's been great. Thanks to both of you for joining the show today and having a great conversation. It's funny, we've got a new pattern because a couple guests, you and Ilan Babchuk, also through Glean recently, have brought up stories involving their kids to close the episode. So that might have to be a fun new feature where we invite guests to do that if, if it's your choice. But, you know, in this case, it was. So thanks for bringing that and uh, looking forward to taking some of the lessons you've taught us today and bringing them forward into future episodes. Thank you so much for having us. And thanks also to all of you out there listening. We want to close out the episode as we always do by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a few ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can check out our Twitter feed, at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can always check out our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And the last way to contact us is via email at Dan at JudaismUnbound.com or Lex at JudaismUnbound.com. The last plug we like to make is that you can always support us with a financial donation, either on a once-a-month recurring basis or just a one-time gift. And you can do either of those at judaismunbound.com donate. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.